0: today's episode, we open our Bibles for a new study on the book of Judges. Judges tells the story of Israel's history from Joshua's death to the rise of Samuel. It's a cycle of sin and oppression, repentance, and then deliverance. Israel repeatedly turning away from God, worshiping idols, and then facing oppression. God would in turn raise up judges like Deborah and Gideon and Samson and Jepheth to deliver them. Today we are starting, of course, with chapter 1, which recounts the Israelites' initial conquest of the Promised Land after Joshua's death. However, as we'll see, they failed to drive out all of the Canaanites, and these remaining inhabitants become a thorn in their side. Good morning and blessed Lenten Today is Monday, March 27th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Nice Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Explore their many offerings of foreign language materials rooted in the Lutheran tradition on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, join me in welcoming my guest this morning, who's going to help us open up the book of Judges with chapter one. Um, I'm pleased to have with us the Reverend Matthew Lorfeld, pastor of St. John Lutheran Church in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin, also known as St. John Kellner. Good morning, Pastor Lorfeld, and welcome back to Thy Strong Word.
1: It's great to be back and joining you as we dive into God's Word once more.
0: Yeah, I'm so happy to have you back. I've wanted to have you on the show for a while, and you were on back in November, which was with Exodus 5, I believe. And since we last talked, uh, you've had some changes in your life, uh, at least one that I know of. You've moved. Uh, How has life been treating you since the last time we were on the air together?
1: Well, things have been great. I, uh, I received and accepted a call. Actually, I think I might have mentioned it when we talked last time, but.
0: I think you were um, contemplating yes, it. I feel like you were contemplating that, that it. That
1: might, yeah. But nonetheless, I, I did take the call or, or accept the call uh, to St. John Lutheran in Kellner, um, which is really just uh, an unincorporated township just outside of Wisconsin Rapids. And we moved, which that's always, uh, especially with uh, four four children, four boys, uh, that means we have a lot of stuff that we had to pack up and unpack now, and uh, but we're we're getting settled in and uh, really enjoying the the good people here in in uh, Central Wisconsin.
0: Well, that's great, that's wonderful. Well, I'm I'm excited that you got out there. I couldn't imagine. You know, I have two kids and I've moved several times with them, and it is such a it's just a hassle. Uh, with four kids, I couldn't imagine. Remind me, what are the age ranges of your kids?
1: My oldest son is nine years old. He's in fourth grade. And my youngest son is 20 months. So I'm in that very active, my boys are in that very active stage. Nice. Um, and they keep us on our toes and, uh, you know, it really wasn't, their stuff wasn't the, the big thing. It's, you know, the you know this and mm-hmm. I know this, us pastors have a book problem. <laughs> we have a, We have a lot of books. And so, you know, after the 40th box of books gets loaded up, you're, you're thinking, do I really need all uh, these? And of course, the answer is yes. Yes, of I do.
0: Yeah, people come and they look at all our books and they say, uh, have you read all those books? And you're like, well, some of them twice, which doesn't really answer the question. But uh, and, and the problem with books and the reason why you end up with 40 boxes of them is because you have to get also kind of smaller boxes. It doesn't take too many books to make a box 50
1: pounds. Oh yeah, yeah. You try to get a huge box, and it does not work. You would, uh, it would require a a, a company of, of people to, uh, <laughs> to carry it around, almost like the uh, the priest carrying the uh, ark of the covenant. See, I'm trying to make that segue there. Well, it's a that. it's
0: it's a good segue because it is they they're hauling everything important from place to place to place. And now, as I'm sure you wanted me to uh, go, they've they've come into the land of Canaan, uh, and that's where we find the beginning of Judges. I, I, uh, I want to dig into that, but I think it'd be a good idea if we started with prayer. And I'd like to, as with last time, invite you to lead us in that prayer.
1: Sure thing. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your word. Bless us as we read Mark, and inwardly digest your word, so that in it we may see ultimately the promise of our salvation in your Son, Jesus, with you and the Holy Spirit, we worship and adore one God now and forever. Amen.
0: Amen. Let's go ahead and begin with a reading from the Scriptures. Uh, I'm going to read just the first seven verses, but then I'm going to kind of take a step back and ask you to introduce what's going on. But I think the first few verses helps do that a little bit also, so let's read it, Uh, starting with chapter 1 of Judges, verse 1 from the English Standard Version. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and Yahweh gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Sorry, I always get a little hung up on the cutting off his thumbs and big toes part, but before we get into that... Uh, we're starting with the death of Joshua, and obviously they're going in to take over the Canaanite territory. Uh, maybe maybe give us a little bit of a foundation of, of what has happened, where we are in time, what is going on, what's, what's this book about?
1: Sure, we are at, um, if you want to pull out your calendars, at about 1400 B.C., um, my, my Lutheran study Bible has the death of Joshua in the year 1399 BC. So that's where we get the, uh, beginning of the book of Judges. Uh, and, uh, Joshua of course was the successor to Moses and, uh, he led the people into the promised land, the land, uh, flowing with milk and honey, the, the land of Canaan, uh, which has of course the Canaanites and, um, they were read once again the, the Torah, the, the law of God, and, and they repeated their promise to obey the commands of the Lord. Um, there's both law and gospel that's kind of tied into this, uh, but they, they, they started to settle in the various uh, regions which uh, each of the tribes of Israel were, were appointed to settle. Um, and, uh, and then Joshua dies at the end of the book of Joshua and uh, we are left now without kind of a named leader at the beginning of the book of Judges. Uh, that'll lead us then uh, through this this period which, as, as you mentioned, this, this kind of uh, continuing cycle or spiral, downward spiral really, of uh, sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, and then peace, and it kind of repeats itself. All the way through, uh, we we go from uh, some good uh, judges to to some terrible judges, uh, and then at the end, uh, we we hear at the very end in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, that's that's going to be kind of a theme. Uh, when people start to do what's right in their own eyes, their their sin, there will be a consequence for that. There will be then a cry out of repentance, and then God will send a judge, and that judge will bring about a time of peace, and then people will start once again to do what's evil in the sight of their own eyes. So that's—
0: It is very cyclical like—pardon me, cyclical like that. I uh, mispronounced that. But yeah, it it goes over and over, and we just got done reading Hosea. And there were so many things in Hosea, in the judgment called against the northern and southern kingdoms from uh, from God, that really applied to our situation today. And yet again, here we have another text of people continuously falling after their own way and needing to be rescued. And isn't that just as true in our society today as it was back then?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. We, we see the consequences of, of our own self-idolatry uh, in this day and age. And, uh, and you know, there, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm. Uh, if we think things are bad now, well, they are. But they were also bad 1400 BC as well, so. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned that the people really don't have a leader anymore. With the death of Joshua, there is no Joshua. There is no Moses. They're neglecting their relationship with God. Um, But the book is called Judges, and and I've read that Judges might not be the best English name for the book because it's really not about them being judges so much as them being uh, maybe their military activities that God uses to free people or free the Israelites from oppression of all these different foreign nations. Um, One source I read said the word deliverers might be a better title, uh, what do you think about that in terms of like the, the title judges? Because I think when I teach this, people get a little confused.
1: Yeah, oftentimes we think about judges in terms of the man or woman sitting in a robe, um, sometimes on TV or or in a real courthouse uh, deliberating over matters of law and so forth. And, and while there, there was that aspect, uh, the these judges were raised up by the Lord, called by the Lord, to uh, deliver God's people during their time of of uh, oppression after they had turned back to the Lord.
0: And there are 12 judges mentioned throughout the book, and just like with the prophets, we call some majors and some minors based on just how much information we have. Uh, some of the major judges, or I guess rather six of the major judges, are um, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. these, Some of these, at least, are going to be very familiar names from Sunday school. And so when we get to those particular narratives, I hope we're able to dig in in ways that are a little more deeper than what you might have remembered from uh, Sunday school. And, and then the other six, the minor judges, which we really don't know a whole lot about, are uh, Shamgar, Tola, Jair, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Um, and... you know i've read that they're they're included really just to bring the number of judges to the 12 to match the number of tribes uh you know results may vary on that opinion but the point is we we have these 12 judges it matches the 12 tribes of israel we see them uh, god using them there are good ones there are bad ones it's such a reflection of society today um anything else before i read some more verses to add them to the conversation
1: well um diving into the beginning of of the the first chapter here right. uh, we we had right. Judah and simeon um being being characters and and really these are the personification of each of 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 their respective tribes um after all Judah was a son of Israel or also known as jacob um and as was simeon uh and that was before they went into Egypt, and and after their 400 years, and then their exile, um, or their time of exile, or time in Egypt, and then their exodus uh, led by Moses. Uh, certainly, this is not the the actual person Judah and Simeon, the son of Israel, uh, still living. We know that they died, uh, and and. This, uh, this way of speaking is a very common way of speaking. It's, sometimes people might uh, refer to you by your last name. Mm-hmm. That, that's a similar way to go um, as this. So, so when Judah and, and Simeon are, are speaking and, and um, talking about fighting against the Canaanites, it is a personification uh, or, or rather kind of taking the, their, their uh, tribal name.
0: I guess that makes it a little easier because when it says, you know, Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight the Canaanites and I'll go up with you. This is probably a, as you said, a personification of much longer, much more complex, probably not even that interesting uh, strategic talks between the two groups and plans for, you know, for the for the sake of the narrative it's to sum up to, you know, the Americas were talking with the with the British about doing X, Y, and Z. It's one of those things.
1: Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, one one other thing I wanted to bring out we ha- we do have another name here, um, Adonai Bezek, uh, which uh, means Lord of Pebble, um, and so this might have been a pejorative. It may have been, may have been a, uh, a mocking name, uh, but nonetheless, it was a leader. Of, of the Canaanites and parasites who they captured and uh, uh removed his uh his thumbs and big toes
0: yeah that's that's an interesting detail you know Bezek is this city near Jerusalem. we don't really know anything about it except what we're told here that they defeated ten thousand of these people, and this king or leader or prince or whatever the Lord of bezek um yeah, it's interesting what he says about that because then he says 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table and he's just acknowledging that he's being repaid for I what I assume he's saying is that he's defeated uh, proverbially 70 kings who then he made servants of him and now he's getting what's coming to him. Uh, but hopefully you'll be able to give us a little insight onto this this imagery and, and what what, he, what he's trying to say here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, he's a uh, you know th- this was a way of definitely subjugating uh, your your prisoner and so forth. Um, any any time you've ever stubbed your toe and then tried to run on it, you you know what a pain that is. And of course, the advantage we have with our opposable thumbs—that's always a big thing. Uh, one other highlight we should mention here in verse seven is that uh, the writer uh, of the book of Judges, which we don't really know who this is, and um, this is clearly done after this long series of Judges, which which does last about 400 years. Um, they, they, they use the, the, the location of Jerusalem. Now, if you have an astute Bible scholar, they might have brought up uh, maybe the observation that Jerusalem wasn't called Jerusalem until around the time of David uh and so this is likely a a a um an author that's writing around the time of Samuel um and this is actually thought to be uh by some uh church uh church fathers that the book of judges was written by Samuel but using using the name for the city where Jerusalem is during their day as Jerusalem even though it wasn't called that yet so just yeah. wanted to highlight that little bit there. That,
0: that does not make a lot of sense. We ran into that issue with Exodus, didn't we? Because Moses is writing, and he wants to write it and use uh, images and cities and even people that the people who are reading it would know. And so it ends up being a little anachronistic. And yeah, so that's a good point to bring up. They're, they're, they're not attacking Jerusalem in their minds. They're just attacking uh, that area, which would later become known as Jerusalem.
1: Yeah, and we do this all the time, too. We do this with uh, Istanbul and Constantinople or Leningrad and St. Petersburg. So we we, we have this in in our own uh, experience as well.
0: Well, let's read on a little bit. I'm going to read verses, uh, let's say, 8 through 15. Here we go. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir, the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-sefer, and Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-sefer and captures it, I will give him Ashash, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Ashash, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, he, she urged him uh, to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Okay, so we have the situation. Uh, By the way, I said Hebron. It's probably pronounced Hebron. Uh, The reason I say Hebron is because I used to be a pastor in a town named Hebron, so I got a little caught up there. Uh, But we have here this text, and it begins with Judah fighting Jerusalem, capturing it, fighting down the Canaanites in the hill country, and then it inserts this almost parenthetical situation of of, uh, uh, Caleb's younger brother capturing it, and getting, for, getting himself a wife and all that other stuff. So we'll try to make sense of that as we go through. Uh, but starting at the top, they, they fought against Jerusalem and captured it. Um, the Canaanites, I suppose, in the area of Jerusalem or someone else?
1: Uh, yeah, the Canaanites would have had the city, which later became known as as Jerusalem. By the way, Jerusalem was actually in the territory of Benjamin, um, and so uh, the the activity of Judah is, is entering into their neighboring tribe, uh, their their brother tribe of Benjamin. It's right there on the border, so uh, it's it's a very it's a very close um, close military activity to the to the border. So they probably saw that as a very strategic site. Um we will find out that they don't hold Jerusalem for very long. But here we, we have we have them following what the Lord had commanded to drive the Canaanites out. That's that's the, that's what we're establishing here is this theme of driving out uh those who, who do not worship the one true God.
0: So what's this deal with the uh you know Aksha or Asha, however her name is pronounced? And Othniel, uh, did you find anything about why we're being told that at this juncture?
1: Well, we get a little bit of of some of what we're going to be hearing out about, at least about a character we're going to hear about in chapter three, Othniel, um, and Axa or Axa. Um, we you have to remember we're we're trying to figure out how to pronounce these names, which we. <laughs> Who knows how they were uh, pronounced during that day and age? Of course, if you were to talk to a modern Hebrew speaker, they might have a different opinion about how to s- pronounce it as well. But Aixa is how I'll pronounce it. Uh, yeah. Is uh, is Caleb's daughter, uh, and Othniel uh, found that uh, that she was motivation enough for him to uh, to capture uh, Kiriath Sefer.
0: So it's it's almost like a I don't want to say a side bet that sort of <laughs> demeans it a little bit, but basically when they're spying out the land, he says, "Hey, whoever can catch this place, uh, Kiryath Sefer would have, would mean something like the the land of scrolls. So maybe there was a library or something there. But you know, whoever can capture that, he can have uh, my daughter as a wife. And so here we have um, the this guy coming out and claiming it. So it's uh, an interesting insight into also the humanity and what's really going on as these people go in and fight the battles that God has called them to fight.
1: Yeah. And and it should be noted, you know, here we have a a woman actually being named in, in judges. We don't have a lot of them being named in in the old Testament. So uh, when we do have one, it's, it's good to kind of, you know, maybe realize, Hey, this is a little bit out of the norm. So this should tell us something important is happening here. Um, and she receives a blessing. So whenever we have uh, uh, this, whenever we have language of blessing, we should be automatically then looking to connections to uh, the gospel itself, it, even if it's just just a little shadow of that. And so we can... Uh, we can look there a little bit as well.
0: Well, and I'll interject too, for those who might, in you know modern sensibilities, be offended by a daughter being given to this guy. The reality is during this time, um, Aksa or Aixa would likely have been pretty honored to be able to then be with a war hero, like Ofniel. Um, and then she obviously has some a power of her own because she's not pleased with the land that her father gives to her war hero now husband Othniel. And so she demands that uh, it get a water supply. She's like, Hey, I, I there's give me, give me a blessing. Since you've set me in this land of the Negeb I need some springs of water. And then of course, we're told that Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. We see some generosity on a part of dear old dad here. It's just nice to see the humanity here.
1: Yeah. It, it definitely is, and we see, you know, of course, the Negev is is a desert. That's the wilderness. It's likely where Jesus um, uh, spent some time in the wilderness. I don't think it was the the wilderness of temptation, but uh, the, nonetheless, the uh, the uh, wilderness of the Negev is is not a very uh, hospitable place. It's it's down in the south, uh, south of Mount Carmel, and um, in the uh in the in the region where simeon uh is the uh the tribe so it's a uh, it's a very arid place um, and it kind of butts right up against the uh it continues all the way to the dead sea a reason for why they they might not be thrilled with uh having uh, a desert as as a uh, a blessing or a, as inheritance um
0: Right, especially if yeah, if they're it's kind of the it's it needs to be developed a little bit. I mean, but it also gives us a, a picture of them going in and dividing up the land. You know, I don't think that it's it's in our common experience. I can't think of any examples where you you get land by virtue of having, you know, being the either the first people there, which isn't the case here, or conquering it from the people who previously owned it. Um, You know, things like imperialism and colonialism is very, you know, downplayed today. Uh, Everyone wants to assert their sovereignty over the other. And I guess it does keep world peace for a certain extent. But we see here that I I guess I liken it to those who are moving out west during the time where they were homesteading. You know, you would go and you would set up you would set up a homestead, And if you lived there long enough, it was yours. And you, you would divide it up and then pass it on to your children So I'm just trying to think of some imagery that might get us an understanding of what it feels or looks like for them to come into the land, conquer it from their previous owners by the permission and command of God, and then just basically say, okay, well, this section's going to be mine, and this section's going to be yours. Uh, It must have been a a very foreign concept, at least to our understanding.
1: Yes, it is, and the the big thing here is that the the land is actually— tied in so much to the very promise of 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 their deliverance from the hand of of pharaoh in egypt uh the land and the promise really go together in fact it's so much so that every seven years there's supposed to be kind of a reset uh you know property gets returned and so forth every every uh I'm sorry that not every seventh year every seventh year there's a sabbath year, but every fiftieth year seven uh at the at the end of forty nine years there's a fiftieth year, and that will be a, a final um a, a final uh jubilee year where the where the land gets reset and returned to the prior uh owners and so forth to their historical owners. Of of course, this doesn't actually get followed. That's that's going to be one of the problems that Israel has from the book of Judges on out, is that they don't observe the Sabbath and Jubilee uh, resetting of things, uh, returning uh, land. Because at, at the heart of this is the reality that the land is ultimately the Lord's, and it's given as a gift. And received as gift, not something simply earned by their conquering. It is it is the Lord who gave this to them as promise.
0: I think that's an interesting fact. Because like you said, the Jubilee is talking about really that God owns it all. And so every fifty years, debts are forgiven, slaves are released, you know, and the lands returned to its original owners, as you said. And this happens on the Day of Atonement, by the way. It's begun by the Day of Atonement. But but my, my greater point is is that I just read recently an article, and I can't attest to its veracity, but they were talking about how the natives who lived in the Americas, the ones who uh, sold the island of Manhattan for so cheap, it's it's kind of like a, um, it's sort of a punchline that the the colonialists depends on how you look at it. Either they came over here and took advantage of the poor native population, or the native population um, just didn't know better to sell it for such a small amount. Well, according to this particular scholar, they said the reason why the natives sold it for such a small amount is they thought they were taking advantage of the colonialists because they would come over and they would say things like, we want to buy this land from you, and they didn't have really an understanding that anybody could actually own land, so they're like, okay, if you want to pay us for something that doesn't exist, go ahead. And so the story gets turned on its head that maybe they were the wise ones because they they were thinking about, well, we there's... People can't own land, and I, I think about that in this in this context too. Obviously, God permits private ownership of things and land; otherwise, we wouldn't have commandments against coveting. But ultimately, all things, all good gifts, including land and possessions, are from God. But as you said, as we're going to see, they really failed to keep these things to any great, you know, to any great extent.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The uh the failure of, of keeping uh, the the Sabbath years, the failure of keeping the feasts, the failure of keeping the years of Jubilee, ultimately are what leads the the country, uh, the, the people into uh, apostasy. And ultimately it's what leads them into exile into Babylon. Now that's where we're looking far, far ahead. You'd have to go all the way through first and second Kings to get get through that that portion of history and you know almost a, almost a thousand year uh stretch here
0: well and we we won't be able to get there today regardless i tell you what we're going to take a break though because we're up against the break but folks don't go anywhere when we come back pastor lorfeld and i will keep on going as we go step by step through judges chapter one we'll see you on the other side Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Matthew Lorfeld, pastor of St. John Lutheran Church in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. Folks, thank you for joining us today as we study judges. And don't forget that I encourage you to email me at pastorboo at gmail.com with your feedback, or you know, you can find me on Facebook to ask questions or just say hello. Uh, Be sure to tell your friends and family too to listen to Thy Strong Word on the radio in the St. Louis area live or on demand at kfuo.org or through the kfuo app or even as a podcast there are so many ways to stay up to date or even to catch up on episodes you've missed i'm just so encouraged that you tune in and grow in faith with me and my guests each weekday so i just want to say thank you for listening all right well pastor Lorfield, before the break we were just getting into dividing up this land and and how uh this uh this woman um Aixa, she was telling her dad, hey, listen, we, we need some land with some water. And we got a little bit into a discussion about dividing up and owning land. I'd like to continue the conversation by digging back into the text. We're going to read verses 16 through 21, and here we go. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and they settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And Yahweh was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So now we're getting a little bit more of a... I don't know, a little realistic picture, maybe a little bit more realistic than it was where we read it elsewhere in scripture, that yes, the Lord is with them. Yes, they're running people out, but it's pretty incomplete in some areas. Uh, Take us through this. What's going on on the ground?
1: Well, they're continuing to push out the Canaanites, and they're having some success. Uh, Judah and Simeon, uh, Defeat the Canaanites in uh, Zephath, uh, which is a watchtower city in the region of Judah. Uh, they also uh, capture Gaza, which is on the coast. Gaza is one of the one of the, uh, the king cities, the, the royal cities of the Philistines, and we're going to have lots of action coming from Gaza and Ashkelon and Gath. Those are three of the the large uh, Philistine cities. And they're going to be a problem all the way through David's rule as well. So uh, this is is going to be an ever-present problem for them because they don't drive everybody out. As much as they they are able to take those cities uh, and the Lord is with them, uh, they still do not drive out all the inhabitants. We find out one of the reasons that they are not are not able to is because they're chariots of iron.
0: Tell us about these chariots of iron. I mean, is, this is something that the Israelites did not have, that they did have, of course, a God on their side. Uh, but we read in Joshua chapter 17, verse 16, the people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth-shean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. These um, chariots of iron, uh, are—they, I guess they're a result of the fact that they have been established in this territory for a while. They could build these kinds of things, uh, but the Israelites, well, they had to run into the hills. Uh, it, it, it's just an interesting, um, I guess— Detail of the battles.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's as simple as is is what it is. It's just a detail, maybe a, a evidence of maybe they have better technology um, with with making iron axles and whatnot. Um, but I, I I I don't see any reason to read much beyond that. It's just a, a fact that they had these these chariots. Um, and that was the reason given why they were not able to drive them out. They just simply were not able to overcome that uh, the uh, the chariots and, and the whole cavalry that they had.
0: So when they went up into the hill country, those iron chariots aren't going to be much use in the rocky hill country. So they take possession of that. So we also get that indication here. I mean it's said first that they took possession of the hill country but could not take the plain— And it's probably because, again, the people living in the plain couldn't really take their chariots. They weren't off-road chariots up into the mountains. And then Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, uh, and he drove out from it three sons of Anak. Uh, But he didn't drive out the the Jebusites. And so this, uh, the writer of Judges is saying, is why you can find Jebusites and Benjamites living in Jerusalem to this day. Uh, we also see that in Joshua, um, just simply a reiteration of what we see here. He says in Joshua 15, 63, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out, so the Jebusites dwell with the people of Jerusalem, uh, or, sorry, of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Um, just interesting, right? Because we see that Jerusalem um, is pretty old city. It's mentioned in Egyptian texts. And so people were living there, and now they're living together. But that was not God's intent, right? He wanted them to completely destroy them. Am I right?
1: Absolutely. And and if you recall, we, we actually have a name here that may sound familiar, um, Anak and his three sons. If you go back to Numbers chapter 13, it is here where we find um, that the spies go up to the Negev, uh, and come to Hebron, and there, uh Anak's sons are his descendants, um, and I'm going to completely butcher these names, Ahimon, Shishai, and Talmai are, are the three sons. They were there, and uh, they were also known to be uh, large, tall giants, um, and so that was what scared off all but two of the spies, and Resulted then in uh, wandering in the wilderness for forty years. So,
0: well, yeah. So you, not only do you you're fighting people with chariots, you're fighting giants. You know, figuratively speaking, you're you're having a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. I think that this really reflects for us the idea that that God commands them to do it, and inherent in the command is that this land is His gift to those people. So uh, that means they will succeed. At least that's what you should think. And so their their lack of success, is that because, and this is a question we have to ask, is that because somehow God was not with them despite his promises? Well, that doesn't sound like the right answer. Or was it because they did not go forth in faith that God had truly given this land to them and their, their I guess, desire for self-preservation or their temptation to follow after the gods around them, which we hear about elsewhere, maybe that was just stronger than, than their desire to follow God's will. I don't know have, have you thought about that I mean why why just as we're getting into it, were they not successful?
1: We aren't given a lot of detail here, but we do see the pattern in the book of of Joshua especially and also in the book of judges that uh, when when Israel trusts in God, they have success um, even when when it seems absolutely like the odds are stacked against them, um, and, and you'll have this, especially Gideon is one that's very notable of this, uh, but in, in other times as well, where, where they are delivered despite the fact that the odds are not in their favor. So it, it, would, it would seem to be that this is setting us up to at least have the question, why do they drive out some and not others? Right. And the rest of the book is going to really answer this question.
0: I think that's good insight. It's not meant to be answered yet. It's meant to do just what we're doing, and that is start asking the question. Uh, Verses 22 through 26, we'll add some more. Here we go. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and Yahweh was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now, the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, and that is its name to this day." Just another interesting detail where, you know, you mentioned earlier about the Iron Chariots. It's like, no, it's just sort of giving us detail, nothing to really read into it. Um, I don't know if that's the case here or not, but it's interesting where we get this detail that they engage a a spy. They're spying in there, and they engage a guy who gives them information for this, this city called Luz. And so then he flees after his life is spared and then builds his own city named Luz. I just think that's kind of funny. Uh but then they do take it over, and this is um what we call Bethel now.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and actually um this this man uh that 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 escaped or that, that they did not put to sword, uh he should have uh, been put to death, uh if they were following right. through on, on the Lord's command. And and this is kind of the, the one of the tropes throughout uh, storytelling you know the you conquer you conquer a, a another army but then let someone go and that very person that that you let go it'll come back around and that will not be uh, good that you let them go at least that's uh, quite often the case
0: right. Well, and for what it's worth, uh, just if you're kind of trying to keep track on a map, which I know is difficult to do, this land of the Hittites, um, the Hittite Empire, is now uh, Turkey. Um, and the designation of the land refers to Syria. And so, thankfully, we've had no more trouble out of Syria to this day, right? <laughs> so, we'll, uh, we'll keep on moving, starting with verse 27. Uh, and we'll go through... Um, let's go through 30. Here we go. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shein and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabit- inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew out, grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. And Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of the Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, or so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Uh, Actually, I'm going to read... Well, no, I'm going to stop there because it kind of keeps going in this manner. But just stopping there... They're not driving them out. This is what we're getting now, one after the other, example after example. And instead of destroying them, you said earlier that this spy that they spared is a sign of things to come. Well, here we have not destroying them, but rather enslaving some of them or flat out living next to them. This is not the command that God gave them. And, of course, this is going to cause them some trouble down the line. Well, down the line and for almost ever
1: indeed in fact, uh, here we already see a little bit of a hint of what's going to come in, in the books of first and second Samuel when you have uh, and in first and second kings, when you have the kingdom ultimately after Solomon splitting between north and south where Judah and uh, Simeon uh, become the, 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 the kingdom of Judah and then the king the northern ten tribes, they become, uh the the kingdom of israel and so now we're kind of taking turning Shemesh our attention of north uh, north of, uh, of jerusalem north of jericho to to ephraim to uh manasseh uh, if you recall manasseh by the way had had two different um regions in the in its inheritance both east and west manasseh um and so it's it's a very large it's in fact the largest uh uh of the uh, inheritances of, of each of the tribes, uh, and then we go um, we go up to uh, Zebulun as well, and, and find once again uh, we are we are not um, or the, the people of God are are not driving out the Canaanites. Uh, they they are putting them to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely, and this will come back and be a problem. Um, and of course. Fast forward to Jesus' day, we have all sorts of times where we encounter Canaanites. Um, Cana, uh, where the wedding was, is in the uh, in the region of of Zebulun, um, and Jesus encounters people possessed by demons, and and of course the Canaanite woman uh, who. Uh, has had five husbands and is now with someone that's that's not her her husband. This all has history that 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 goes back to this very point right here. And so, if you want to understand, for example, that that discussion that the Canaanite woman at the well has with Jesus, really, this is where some of this began. Some of this uh, um, some of this uh, division here began. Between north and south, between Israel and Cana, and uh, as well as the Gentiles um, and the Samaritans as well.
0: Well, I think about the Canaanite woman who came up to Jesus and um, wanted her, the, her daughter healed, right? And and he and she he said, uh, basically, he said that he had come for the 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 house of Israel. Wouldn't be right to give the, their bread to the dogs. And she's the one who said, well. You know, even the, the dogs get the crumbs from their master's table. Um, isn't that a canaanite woman? Because then the idea Yes
1: yes, it is. Yeah, I was I was conflating uh Canaanite and Samaritan, by the way. It was a Samaritan woman at the well, the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus uh, and uh and Jesus ultimately uh commends her for her faith. Um but yeah, she was willing to take Jesus um and, and be a take Jesus at his word and cling on to it and be uh you know, a Canaanite dog if that's what she is, so that she can receive the leftovers that the house of Israel does not eat. So
0: Right, and that's what the bravery of her was she's going up to the the son of David, which she refers to him as, meaning she shouldn't have expected anything from him but death, because if he really is who she believes he is then he should pretty much finish the job where the people failed. And yet, of course, he shows mercy, which gives us insight into the, the mind of God. And the Samaritan woman at the well does give us, obviously, the same types of themes here. And, and we see that, um, the, that God calls for his people to do certain things. And frankly, and this is not liked by people today, but frankly, to not question them. right? God is sovereign. When he says that he must do this, he does know why. Um, you know we might look back and say well why didn't God just say go into this land and and love them and feed them bread and set up hospitals and evangelize them into being faithful Israelites why would he say go and destroy them and and while we can't fully answer that question from our side of heaven we can certainly say from the testimony of scripture that God knows that they're going to cause trouble for the people the people are going to fall after these false gods. They're going to be rebellious. They're not going to be obedient, and they're going to subject themselves uh, because of their disobedience to things like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and everything else that comes their way as a result of their infidelity.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: So let's keep going then, because the, the theme continues for a few more verses, verses 31 through 33. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of the Ahab, or Achzeb, or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. Um, so we see here another few verses of more tribes not completely able to conquer who God has called them to conquer.
1: Yep, you know, we're continuing with this uh, this tour of the northern what will become the northern kingdom. Um, you know, not not to uh, be too anachronistic there, but. It is showing that, again, the northern tribes here are not following through God's command to drive out the Canaanites.
0: And let's keep on going because we're getting closer to the end of our program, but then we have in our final few verses, verses 34 through 36, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres. In Ijalon and in Sha'albim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. And that's where this this text ends. Remember, folks, the chapter divisions are not inspired by God. Um, the, Really, the story does keep going, but we'll have to tackle it starting tomorrow. Uh, but anything else about the rest of what we've read or anything about the text for today as we finish up our show, brother?
1: No, the, the big thing is is that uh, we're doing a lot of setup in this chapter um, uh, of what's going to become a, a pattern, especially later uh, in, in, in the Bible of, of the northern tribes being uh, much less faithful uh, then the southern tribes, although the southern tribes do not get off the hook either, because they become faithless as well. Uh, ultimately, what we're we're going to see is that this is going to have consequences. Uh, the the false The false religion of the Canaanites is going to lead the people of God to worship these false gods, which includes things like like uh, child uh, sacrifice, uh, things that become detestable and uh and, and they'll they will uh they'll be punished for it they'll be oppressed because of it uh, but ultimately this this whole setup is is setting us up also for a, a a vision for what god has promised uh and what he had promised from the very beginning uh to adam and eve that that the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent as his his own heel was crushed uh that that this uh savior this messiah would ultimately be the fulfillment of everything that's happening here uh, it's it's there's there's a lot here in, in in right now we're just in that setup so there, there's not a lot that i want to go into uh is, or steal the thunder from those that'll be looking at the next few chapters because that's really where you get a lot of good stuff, but we're, we're establishing some boundaries, we're, we're filling in our maps, and and we're looking at the landscape of how God's, God's promise ultimately is going to be filled out in this land that was given to his people.
0: Yeah, sometimes these uh, introductory and, I guess, world-building chapters can be a little on the dry side. But, brother, you've helped bring it alive for us. I'm so happy that you've joined us this morning. Uh, That's the Reverend Matthew Lorfeld, pastor of St. John Lutheran Church in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. Uh, Again, thank you, pastor, for being on the show.
1: You're welcome. It was wonderful to, to join you.
0: Folks, tomorrow we are going to tackle chapter 2, and we'll specifically see the death of Joshua, and then, at long last, the introduction of Judges by Yahweh. So folks, please join us, Uh, same time, same place, and until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.